Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. DOD personnel officials have been sifting through the results of a recently concluded challenge. Staff in the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness sought ideas from uniformed and civilian employees on how to improve what they call talent management, new and better ways to recruit, retain, and promote people. Federal Drive host Tom Temin spoke to Force Development HR Specialist Beth Stewart and Special Advisor to the Undersecretary Jeanette Haney. And tell us, well, first of all, what were you trying to get at here? I guess ideas from people who were already in DOD, either on the uniformed or civilian side, on what might have improved their experience in coming in, recruiting, and so on. Tell us what this was all about. Dr. Haney? Absolutely. Thank you so much. So just for a little bit of background, the Talent Management Innovation Challenge was the first of its kind to focus attention on the mission-critical issue of talent management and the need for a more strategic and cohesive departmental talent management approach. And we can give a little bit more about the why in a second, but just to set the stage, it was a mix of bottom-up innovation with top-down strategic alignment, encouraging DOD military and civilian employees at all levels to submit their promising talent management ideas with the potential to make an impact. And we really hoped with this to harness the diversity of thought, experience, background, and capability offered by the total force. We can get into the details of how it went here in a second if there's interest. Well, sure. (laughs) This ran for about a month. And how could people submit ideas online? You had some kind of a mailbox for this? Yes, actually. We invited participants to submit ideas in the following priority areas. Recruiting and accessions, promotion and retention, and then a wild card area as a catch-all. Since this was the first of its kind, we really wanted to cast the net pretty wide. And we had an open season of about seven weeks from early August to September 30th. That session has concluded and we're now in the process of vetting the ideas to push some forward to a semifinal round late this year and early next and then a final round in March. So right in the middle of all those stages right now. Okay, Beth, and how many ideas came in? Did you get a big basket full of uh, tickets here? It was a little concerning because we had over 3 million people who were eligible to participate in the challenge, but we had a reasonable number of 200 really good ideas and over 150 participants and teammates joined to help them provide those ideas to us. And how did that break down uniformed versus civilian? There's about 30% of the participants are in the civilian category, and then we had officers and enlisted participating from every branch across the military. And I guess this is probably obvious, but did the uniform people talk about what it would take to help the armed services get to their recruitment numbers, which they've been struggling with? And did the civilian people talk about, you know, regular federal employment that happens to be under the DOD umbrella? It was really interesting. We had both of those ideas, but we also had ideas that applied to both the military and the civilian population together. In fact, for the recruiting ideas, they proposed more of a joint effort recruiting civilians and military together so that we appeal to a wider talent audience. Yeah, because in many cases, you've got people that in the civilian workforce who were military. I think we've got a couple of cases in point right now. Absolutely. Jeanette, maybe a little bit more on the whys of this whole effort. One of the things that we really enjoyed about this was the passion and the energy that came from these ideas. People are giving us parts of themselves. The folks in the total force are the ones closest to the pain points. And if you think about how big, diverse, and dynamic this department is, as a nation, we talk about America's strengths and how those strengths come from our people, and that's just as true here. And we saw such a range of ideas coming from across the department 
Beth, I'm not sure if you mentioned the, the different grades and ranks we saw, but perhaps adding a little bit of info on the scope of that could help. We had officers, you know, from 01 to 06, you know, your lieutenants to colonels. And I'm sorry, I don't know the Navy grades, but we had civilians from GS4 to the senior executive service. And we had enlisted from E9 to E5. Okay, yeah, that's pretty much the range there. We're speaking with Beth Stewart. She's a force development specialist for the Defense Department and with Dr. Jeanette Haney. She's special advisor to the Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness. And with the understanding that you're still evaluating the ideas, give us a sense of what people specifically suggested here. Well, let's start with recruitment, because that's always a problem, especially on the military side these days. Dr. Haney. I'll say just, you know, typically innovation challenges have focused on inviting technical solutions. So we certainly saw some recommendations and we can't go into specifics as we're still vetting these for the next round, but broadly looking at talent, data and analytics, artificial intelligence and machine learning and visualizations and developing expertise and understanding and leveraging talent data. And that's was both promotion and retention focused and recruiting and accession focused. And Ms. Stewart, what else do we hear? The ideas wanted to target the total population and not just recruit for military service, but also civilians to support the DOD as well. We saw a number of ideas that were interested in recruiting STEM talent and more ways to appeal to them, more ways to market what service is all about from the life that you live and the opportunities that you have working in the Department of Defense that you won't get anywhere else. Yeah, because when you look at the civilian workforce in DOD, it really is the range of things. There's STEM, tons of people in research and development, research and technology transfer throughout the different armed services in DOD, cybersecurity, acquisition, logistics, huge issue for civilian people. And did you find that all of those get represented in the ideas? I don't know that we saw specifics with each one, and we're trying to be careful to not give away too much, but we saw an incredible breadth of focus on different career fields, occupational specialties, and pathways. All right. Well, you got a couple of hundred ideas in from those three million people, and do the couple of hundred ideas at least span a wide range? You didn't get 199 of the same idea and one of something else. They spanned a pretty wide range, and I would say that there were some commonalities, like there were quite a few opportunities where we were vetting the different ideas and said, oh, wow, if we connect this one to that one, think about how impactful that would be. But yeah, it pretty much spanned almost everything across the department. All right. So what happens next with these 200 ideas? And I guess especially how will you operationalize them if that's important? Because an idea to an actual doctrine change or procedural change in DOD is quite a hurdle you know, to the point where Lloyd will say, good idea, I'm signing off on it. It is It is indeed a process in DOD to make change happen in different ways. But, you know, the open submission period has closed, so we're carefully reviewing the ideas and scoring them now based on the challenge criteria. We're evaluating those on creativity, relevance to talent management, potential implementation benefits, feasibility, and impact to the department. So we're tapping subject matter experts of the key ones, and we're purposely not saying an exact number, are going to move forward to a semifinal round, which will be a virtual pitch in front of a panel of key DOD personnel and readiness experts. And then from there, we'll recommend a small group move up to the final round. How each one progresses will really depend on the merits of each idea and where we're able to connect them. 
But we also don't see just the semifinalists and finalists as the end-all, be-all. We're hoping to connect good ideas, no matter how mature they are, to different subject matter experts across the department through this. And these presentations to the judges of the next round, will they be by you or will they be by the people who submitted the ideas that might get tapped and say, guess what, we've got something for you to do up here at the Pentagon? No, it will definitely be by the folks who have the energy and passion behind these ideas, the ones who have been the closest to the challenges and figured out how to mitigate those. And are those people geographically scattered? I mean, might they have to make a trip to Washington or, I guess, Virginia, technically, to do this? Yes, that's a great question. So the semifinal round is virtual, and then the final round will be in person. However, there will be a virtual option or a delay option if someone needs to, you know, for operational reasons, propose or make their pitch at a later time. And Jeanette, will you pick them up at, say, the airport in a helicopter, since I know you can fly them? (laughs) I fly a Honda Odyssey now, so maybe a 2010 (laughs) Honda Odyssey that's missing paint on top. That would be me. All right. They do have a paint problem on top, don't they? (laughs) They do. you got to get to them fast or they don't cover it, by the way. So there's more to go yet. And what's your basic timeline when you think something might be a solid proposal for the uh, brass to consider? So every single one of these ideas is different, which makes it a little challenging to say exactly when. But what we're hoping is for the final pitch, which we're targeting for March, leaving that again a little bit open-ended just because we didn't know how many ideas would come in, et cetera, the best ones can really move forward quickly, or they could be something where there's a pilot and then they move forward down the road in different phases. Jeanette Haney is Special Advisor to the Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness, and Beth Stewart is Force Development Specialist for DOD. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive, and you can hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. 
So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on 
on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor and I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, 
I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's. Uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day.
Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.